0: Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We're all recording remotely, still amid COVID, so thank you for tuning in. We hope that you have a very safe and blessed day.
0: You can catch the Bridge Builder program every week on your favorite Catholic radio station right here at this same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast, but find us also on your favorite podcast apps such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Remember, you can become a sponsor of the Bridge Builder Show. Becoming a sponsor is a great way to let Catholics know that your business or organization supports bringing the Catholic faith into public life. Each week on the Bridge Builder, we try to bring you great interviews on some really timely topics. We answer your questions in our mailbag segment and then give you a practical way that you can start bringing your faith into the public arena in our bricklayer segment. The common good is built brick by brick. In today's episode, we've got a great interview linking the... uh, Covid nineteen challenge with the assisted suicide debate. It's it's uh, amazing how uh, this pandemic is making a lot of issues around healthcare and uh, protecting the elderly and the vulnerable, making those come into more focus. In our mailbag segment, we discuss the ethics of vaccination production and the call for creating a COVID-19 vaccine that is free from ties to abortion. And in our bricklayer segment, we help you look at new ways that you can find advocacy opportunities to ensure every Minnesotan receives real care throughout life's journey. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Valieri. He's the executive director of the Patients' Rights Action Fund, and he'll tell us more about what that is and how it works to protect patients as well as fighting the legalization of assisted suicide. Matt is a graduate of Thomas Aquinas College, spent many years in business before taking over as executive director of the Patients' Rights Action Fund. He's also an emergency medical services first responder. He had a recent op-ed in Newsweek in which he points out the need for federal triage protocols that ethically and legally ensure equal access to care. Matt, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Grateful to have you on today. Tell us a little bit about the Patients' Rights Action Fund and what drew you into your role that uh, you are leading that organization now.
2: Sure. The Patients' Rights Action Fund is a national, secular, nonpartisan, single-issue leader uh, that protect the rights of patients, people with disabilities and other vulnerable groups from the negative impacts of legalized assisted suicide. We do that in great part in the states uh, in defending against proposed legislation that would allow for physicians to assist people with their suicides by bringing together the very disparate groups from right to left and secular to religious that would oppose. There are a lot a lot of people who you know, don't think that suicide is a difficulty in the face of some personal issues, but who think that the public policy is so bad and so dangerous that they oppose and they join our coalitions. So you have a real smattering of folks that oppose assisted suicide, and our organization is this kind of neutral territory in which everyone um, is able to work and historically oppose one another on many other issues, it it's, tends to be the only issue that they all agree on. And so we're, we've done a lot of work uh, at the national level, making relationships with folks who could call on their state-level affiliates and friends who come together in coalition to oppose um, those state-level initiatives. While at the same time, uh, we as an organization and our national-level friends work um, in D.C. on Capitol Hill and within uh, the federal government, different agencies to push back on this uh, onslaught. Say a little bit more about the diversity of
0: partners uh, that you've been working with at the national level. I think we had a a similar experience here in Minnesota. We're a part of something called the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare, and that's got some really diverse uh, uh, partners and, and collaborators.
2: Sure. I mean, since we're uh, you all are our hosts today, as the, the Catholic Conference. The Church has certainly um, played a great role in um, opposing the legalization of assisted suicide, uh, but the Church has worked with a number of other partners that include various other religions, not just other Christian Protestants, and, but as well Jews and Muslims in a Baptist background. Uh, but you also have a lot of secular folks that join in the fight, and so that those people come from the medical perspective. So they're nurses, doctors, social workers, as well as patients. So and some of our our most crucial voices in this fight are patients who have a chronic life-threatening illness and who have survived a six-month less prognosis, because that is the litmus test and the the. That allows somebody and qualifies them for assisted suicide in states where it's worth legal. And that's that's a very powerful message when somebody outlives those those grim prognoses because doctors are sometimes wrong. Um and, and they're often in prognostication more often wrong than they're right. You also have people from the disability rights community. Um, so uh, most disability organizations uh, lean left or are as far left as you can imagine. And so there's a kind of range there, but most of them are progressive. And they uh, see this as a direct attack on their lives and certainly um, a violation of the ADA, uh, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and even of equal protection under the 14th Amendment. That's kind of a smattering. It's not certainly inclusive of everyone and every representative group, but it gives you an idea that um, this is really a very human Issue. It doesn't cut across party lines or ideological lines in the way that many other issues do. Um, and in that sense, um, it gives me great hope for our side and our mission that we have a legitimate chance to win.
0: Uh, say, say more about that, Matt. I think that's uh, something that our listeners should hear, is that you're feeling hopeful about the wisdom and the prudence and the reasonability of this perspective across religious, ideological, partisan lines. Tell us a little bit more about the pol- national policy landscape and what's
2: going on there and why you feel hopeful. Every year we see about between 15 and 25 states that have proposed legislation. And the other side's spending an astronomical amount of money pushing that legislation in the states. Um, our side spends dramatically less, but because state-level legislators see groups as far left as they know and as far right as they know, they come to the state house holding hands, they stop and listen, and they hear these legitimate difficulties with assisted suicide public policy, these dangers to vulnerable people. When you, the, There are two things that assisted suicide laws do the first thing that it does is it changes suicide into a medical treatment so that's coded by your insurance often covered by your insurance it's a prescription that's filled by your physician and um, you go get it at your pharmacy and so this is this changes the whole way that people think about suicide because it's now a medical treatment it also under the law anyway it also uh, removes liability from physicians so everything else a physician does um, in the United States is held to the negligence standard. It's a legal standard that's pretty high. But under assisted suicide law, these physicians can assist a person in killing themselves with uh, a lethal dose of drugs. And if they were acting in quote-unquote good faith, um, a much lower legal standard, then their liability is nil. And the good faith standard is so low that they can just walk into court and say, I was I was acting in good faith. And so no prosecutor would... Would go after them criminally, and it would be nearly impossible to win a wrongful death suit um, in civil court. And so these are these are the uh, the things that the assisted suicide laws do, and those those things come with so many problems from the undermining of our our fight against suicide in general, and the message that it sends to our young people who are on the edge, uh, who are veterans. All the way through to, you know, when um, you're treating some people in one way, where they get suicide help, and those people happen to be a protected class because all of the the diseases and conditions that qualify a person for assisted suicide also, under federal law, make them a person with a disability. That protected class is treated in a different way when requesting suicide help from their medical professionals. They're given help with their suicide, whereas um, the rest of the population, the general population, gets suicide prevention. And so you've created a two-tier system, and that's against the law in the United States.
0: What, who, Matt, say a little bit more about uh, the, who the advocates are behind assisted suicide. And, and when it's so easy to end your life, sadly, why do they think we need to institutionalize it and make doctors the agents of death, as you've so well described?
2: You know, many, many in the pro-assisted suicide movement, on their side of things, they're your neighbors. They're people who have witnessed somebody pass away. Um, in an excruciating pain, or you know, hooked up to all kinds of machines, and they don't want that for themselves, or they don't want to force other people to die under those circumstances. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding for your average supporter of assisted suicide. Where in the last 10 years, hospice and palliative care medical science has come so far that if you're in the last stages of your life and you are in pain, you need a new doctor. It's, it, physical pain can be as I have understood from experts in the field, 100% mitigated, at least within reason. Now, there, there may be some very tough cases, and for the tough cases, there's such a thing as, as um, palliative sedation for the imminently dying and general anesthesia. But all the top five reasons that people are asking for assisted suicide in those legal states are all um, disability concerns. Things like, I feel like I've lost my dignity. I can't, I, I feel or I'm afraid of not being able to do the things I used to enjoy. I feel like a burden on my family. These are resolvable issues. And this is not a place we need to go. Now, people at the core of, of their side, there are a lot of theories about it. They're very careful about their messaging. And so it's unclear um, exactly what their motivation is. They often will say, we would like to remove suffering at the end of life and give people more choices at the end of life. But since suffering can be managed through very through the top quality palliative care and hospice care, what we need to be working towards is greater access and more training for medical professionals in those fields. On the choice issue, when assisted suicide is legalized, you in fact, have less choice. So even if you thought that that was okay, Um, for people to to do that sort of thing. The the issue here is that people who um, would like to receive care that their physician has suggested to them, but that their insurance company is denying them coverage for when the ever-cheap assisted suicide is always on the table. Now you have poverty or underinsuredness becoming um, causes for people's terminal designation under assisted suicide law. So under the statutes that are being proposed across the nation, it's not six months or less to live, period. It's six months or less to live with or without care. That's that's a atypical clinical definition. The clinical definition would see a disease like uh, my dad has diabetes. They would see that as a perfectly treatable and non terminal illness. Whereas under assisted suicide law, my dad would qualify. Why? Because he is within his right To reject any and all medical treatments if he were to say I'm off my insulin um, he would be terminal Mm -hmm. Um, he would have six months or less to live and so he could get the drugs and in fact there are a small percentage of people every year who receive the lethal drugs in the legal states uh, who have diabetes and this is this is insane right so uh, we have to we have to really review what what the choice question is here in fact if I'm being denied coverage for care for the treatment that I would like and my physician's suggesting to me, um, but suicide's on the table, now you have people having less choices at the end of life. And if there were some small percentage of people who were you know, well off and had great insurance and everything else, and they get that additional, additional means to the thing that they already have access to, since suicide is not a criminal
1: act in any of the 50
2: states, um, you're, you're providing this additional means to just a very small sliver of people while you're taking away choices from a great number of people because of the inexpensive reality that it's just cheaper to, to help you kill yourself than it is to really treat you.
0: Yeah, I think you've hit it right on the head, Matt, that when when care is expensive and killing is cheap, which choice are people going to be presented with by their insurance providers or even their doctors in some instances? Protecting the choice of some is going to endanger the choices of the rest of us. We're speaking with Matt Vallieri. He is the executive director of the Patients' Rights Action Fund, a national leader combating the legalization of assisted suicide, bringing together diverse parties and actors in that fight. So we're thankful to Uh, Patients' Rights Action Fund and their work, and for Matt being on the bridge builder today. Matt, you mentioned the slippery slope here, and I think we're seeing in Europe and Canada that that slope is very slippery indeed. We're seeing the dementia patients being euthanized. Now in Holland, the German Supreme Court has basically said that assisted suicide for almost any reason is legitimate. Why, Why have the experiences in Canada and Europe not been as instructive as perhaps they could be
2: in, in the United States, or am I wrong about that? Um, I think that you you have in the United States um, a sense that we're a different kind of human being, um, and that, that'll that never happen here, that kind of thing. the The difficulty that I've seen is that it's already happening here. Uh-huh. Although it is technically against the law to help somebody kill themselves based solely on Um, on mental illness or something like that, in in unresolvable mental illness as it is in some of those other countries. um, You do have people like Michael Freeland, for example. He had a 40-year history of acute clinical depression and suicide attempts, yet when he went to uh, try to access the suicide drugs, they were given to him. He was forcibly admitted to a, a psych ward and when released, uh, they went to his home to take away all of the, the, the implements with which he could kill himself. They found his su- assisted suicide drugs and said, oh, well, he got these legally, so we'll have to leave these here. Um, you have a, a, an example like Kate Cheney, dementia patient whose daughter was from the medical record as quoted as she could be coercive, and she seemed angry when the doctors rejected her mother for the assisted suicide and yet she just doctor shopped until they found a physician that would give her mom the drugs you know this is a dangerous public policy it's dangerous not just in this hypothetical slippery slope but because the supposed safeguards are so hollow you're you're in a situation already where the slope has slipped and because they're all circumventable and you can easily find a way around them.
0: What, Matt, say a little bit about um, how COVID 19 is shaping the assisted suicide debate. I think a lot of folks are seeing progressives argue that economic concerns shouldn't weigh in on the protection of human life and that we need to protect our elderly and our vulnerable by social distancing and all these quarantines and everything else like that. And how do you think this is going to shape the assisted suicide debate going forward? It seems to be on some level a very positive dynamic in the sense that people are connecting the dots. But what is your sense of how COVID-19 and sense of caring for the elderly and the vulnerable Um, and not letting economics get in the way, which is essentially what we've been talking about here. How is that going to shape this uh,
2: debate going forward? I have great hope that that people will come to their senses, and they'll see that through this pandemic that people who they might have otherwise seen as dispensable, even, even just subconsciously, or they just didn't want to deal with death, they didn't want to deal with people who were close to it, now this is front and center the value of those people's lives being called out as equal. You know, so some of the debate surrounding COVID has been around triage and whether or not um, we might have to ration scarce medical resources. Thankfully, with regard to ventilators, that's, that's been averted. So far, so good. Not to say that it couldn't be an issue, but there are other scarce medical resources as well that, you know, may come down to rationing. Who gets the vent? Who gets the uh, dialysis machine, etc.? When doctors have to make tough decisions, are they going to make them based on a kind of uh, discriminatory prejudice against folks with advanced age or people with disabilities? Um, just be- there were some um, triage protocols that said if you have, uh, you know, certain. Intellectual development disabilities. You are going to be automatically disqualified from getting the scarce medical treatment. Certainly, in, in Lombardy, you've seen people of a certain number of years being triaged away. You now, no, you you are not going to get the scarce medical resource. Rather than looking at you know very basic physiological facts of whether or not this person is going to benefit from the treatment and what chances of survival they have with that treatment for the disease that's presenting itself at the time. Um, If we, as a society, go down the road of, even in crisis, suggesting that some people's lives are more worth living than others, that is the basis of the argument that we can and should be helping some people kill themselves. So if two people go into a physician and ask them to help them kill themselves, one person is getting suicide assistance and the other person is getting suicide prevention, um, what is the difference? And the difference is, is that the physician has then made a judgment call, uh, a qualitative judgment on the life of the one person, that it's not worth giving them the same care to preserve their life as for the other person. And that's where the, the two issues kind of collide and the principles are the same. Um, if, if you are treating some people as though their lives are not worth living or not worth the treatment or at least not an equal chance at getting it, uh, with regard to the COVID situation in Triad, then you've already uh, devalued the the equal dignity of each person.
0: It's an important thing to think about. Matt, we've got time for just one more question and a brief answer from you, because I, I want to know what you think uh, our policymakers should be doing instead of legalizing assisted suicide. We we talk about uh, giving legislators something to be for rather than to be just against things. But what should our policymakers be doing at the end of life uh, to make better policies and to provide better care so that people don't feel like they're going to be a burden, so that they have alternative choices to assisted suicide? What needs to happen, just briefly, on that front? Sure.
2: The, there are a variety of things that lawmakers can do um, and communities can do. So some of what drives people to uh, prefer killing themselves over care is that they feel like a burden. This is one of the top five reasons people are requesting. If you've got um, a homebound person in your neighborhood, or you know of a of a a nursing home, once these kind of restrictions on visitation are over, you know to know those people and to be able to have a relationship there where they can get decent care and once advocate on behalf of that care, but for the sake of lawmakers, you know, we have in medical schools, you know, you've got to take a certain number of hours of of obstetrics. There are not that many doctors who actually deliver babies in the end, but there are not required hours of palliative care and of hospice care. Almost every doctor that deals with serious illness is going to have to, on some level, deal with palliative care. Uh, and to get better training, especially for palliative care for people with serious chronic life-threatening illnesses. Palliative care and hospice care don't just deal with the physical pain, although that is a piece of it. And that is in the 25th percentile and the sixth reason why people are asking for assisted suicide. But you also have things like, you know, I feel like I've lost my dignity. I feel like I can't enjoy the things I used to. Um, These, or I've, I've lost my ability to control my bodily functions. These are things that Through good home care, through good personal attentive care, um, through good even even social work and psychological care, these are things that can be resolved by giving people a sense of dignity even when they are not fully in control and a a sense of support and that their life is valuable and that, that their community and their loved ones and their medical professionals value them. Um, those those aspects of palliative and hospice care are a big deal, and I think that we could do a lot more both in policy and in our communities. And you know, for, for you and your constituency uh, with church, uh, you know, the church could certainly continue doing the very good work that it, it does and increase that work for people who are homebound, for the elderly for the chronic life-threatening folks with chronic life-threatening illnesses and people with disabilities. These are things that are not being done as well as they could. I mean, I take a look at even my own state. I live in Massachusetts. Hospice enrollment in Massachusetts is 50%. We're a little bit better than the nation, but not much. And that's 50% for people who are on for a week or less. It's only 25% that are on for more than a week. So if in one of the best states for hospice enrollment and, and utilization, you only have 25% of people really benefiting from this end-of-life um, care that really does attend to the reasons why people are killing themselves. you need to do a lot better job um, getting this gold standard of care for end-of-life to people and giving them the, the education, the opportunities to access it. Matt,
0: we're grateful for your work at the Patients' Rights Action Fund, a leading organization fighting assisted suicide and bringing diverse groups together to do so and defend the dignity of human life. Thank you for your work. You can find out more about uh, Patients' Rights Action Fund at patientsrightsaction.org. Matt Balieri, thanks for coming on the Bridge Builder program today.
2: Thank you. Take care.
0: And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Back to the Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. It's now time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit, what have you got?
1: So recently, we've received questions from members of our Catholic Advocacy Network. They've been voicing concern that a vaccine for COVID-19 could be produced unethically, and specifically through the use of cells from aborted babies. Jason, can you explain a little bit about what the Church teaches on the use and creation of vaccines, and maybe what our listeners can help do to ensure an ethical vaccine for COVID-19 is created?
0: Sure, basic principle, of course is do no harm. That's the one of the most fundamental principles of ethics and the natural law. Using and exploiting the remains of children who've been killed through abortion is uh, certainly wrong. And there' have been reports that companies and pharmaceutical companies are using existing stem cell lines that have been developed from aborted fetuses and are still permissible to use. There's a federal ban on uh, using material from new stem cell lines from aborted fetuses, but there are old ones, and there's reports that those are being used in the creation of uh, vaccines. So U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and the Church and other groups have asked the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to ensure that vaccines are not created in unethical ways that exploit the aborted fetuses and are connected to abortion. There can be vaccines that are developed in ethical ways. Vaccines are, in fact, developed without using stem cells and cell lines from aborted fetuses. And so there's an action alert uh, that we've been sending out through the USCCB helping people connect their views on that and letting federal policymakers in Washington know that that's wrong to do. People, of course, want answers. They want a solution and a vaccine to this COVID-19 pandemic, but we have to do so rightly and do so in a way that honors human life. If people want to send a message, now they can go to the usccb.org and click on Take Action Now under the Issues and Actions tab to send a message on that issue.
1: Great. Thanks, Jason. And Before we go, we want to leave our listeners with practical ways that they can start building the bridge between faith and public life.
0: There's an opportunity to take up the issue of assisted suicide and fight for better care at the end of life. You can join the Minnesota Alliance for Ethical Healthcare at ethicalcaremn.org and work on some of the issues that Matt Valieri was talking about earlier in the program and join your voice to a local group of diverse advocates who are fighting assisted suicide uh, here in Minnesota. The Alliance, again, is a diverse coalition of doctors, nurses, and advocates for persons with disabilities, medical ethicists, elder care workers, and faith-based organizations. And individuals can become partner of the Alliance and join the Minnesota Catholic Conference in doing so. To learn more about the issue of assisted suicide here in Minnesota and to be able to take action and join your voice to others, go to MN. Dot org Again, ethicalcaremn.org, and click on the Action tab. That's all the time for we have for today on the Bridge Builder Program. But listeners, you can always be a part of our show by sending a message to show at mncatholic.org, show at mncatholic.org, or connecting with us on social media. And then tune in next week to find out if we include your question or comment. Remember to catch up on past episodes through our podcast app, and you can find that at both mncatholic.org, podcast or go on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions, a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.